Good morning, Grace. Your reading this morning is John 20, verses 1 through 28. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. In stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Easter Grace Church. It is the great hope of all mankind that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus because of the empty tomb. Truly, and I want you to consider this, Matt already asked you to consider this, I'm going to ask you again. 
Truly the fate of all humanity literally hinges on our response to the resurrection. For all these reasons, preaching on Easter is one of the most emotionally conflicting experiences of my year every year. The best term I've heard to describe it is glad gravity. There is an unparalleled weight, gravity, attached to the responsibility of heralding this message, getting it right and sharing it with an appropriate God-honoring heart delivery. And at the same time, there is an unparalleled joy, truly, gladness, that comes from the absolute conviction. I believe with all that I am and all that I have that this is true and that it is, it is a great privilege to be the one who gets to tell you or remind you of this. Glad gravity. And that happens to be my prayer for all of you as well that you would experience that. I hope this sermon helps you appreciate both the, the heaviness of the truthfulness of the resurrection, the heaviness and the wonder of this day, such that it launches you out into the world to live in light of it with everything you do, every thought you think, every feeling you feel, and every action you take, and to declare this good news to the whole world around you. To those ends... We're going to consider three things, the reality of the resurrection, the relevance of the resurrection, and the right response to the resurrection. Pretty clever, right? Three hours, you can remember that. So let's pray. God, thank you very much that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Death could not hold him. Thank you that this is real, that it actually happened. Thank you that it matters in ways beyond our wildest dreams, beyond even our ability to comprehend. There's relevance to the resurrection for us now and forever. And because of those things, there is a right response. You mean us to live in light of the resurrection in certain ways. And I pray that you would help us to see each of them. I know that each one of us needs to hear one or more of those three things this morning. For the skeptic, I, I pray this morning that by the power of your spirit, there would be genuine awareness and conviction and belief that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And I pray for the, the, the wandering or wavering saint, the, 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 the Christian who's struggling in assurance of salvation or fear or doubt or for the struggling Christian, that the relevance of the resurrection for us today, for, for the confidence and freedom and joy that is ours because of it would wash over them. And for all of us, I pray that you would convict us of the half-hearted and overly casual and sometimes indifferent approach to this world we have in light of the resurrection. So God, please, for those struggling in that area, help us to see the right response and the power of the Holy Spirit to help us live it out. Above all, God, I pray that this room would be filled with people who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and are saved, filled with people who this morning, as a result of being here and gathering with the saints and hearing the word of God prayed and, and sung and preached, would leave with a fresh confidence to walk in the power of the resurrection. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most important aspects of Easter, of this day for the whole world, is the fact that it is a historical event. It really did happen. 
The Gospels tell the truth about the facts of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. Grace, I don't know what you grew up with. I don't know where your mind is now. I don't know what you hear at work or at home or at family gatherings later. But it is not a metaphor. It is not a parable. It is not a spiritual lesson, mainly or merely. Settling on the reality of the resurrection is key to any right response to it. Biblically, there are four things, four four aspects of the fact of the resurrection that I want to draw your attention to. You ready? It was planned eternally. It was promised consistently. It was endured willingly, and it happened historically. There are many passages in the Bible that speak to the fact that God's plan of salvation, including the sending and incarnation of the Son, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection was established before the world was even made. We see this in certain promises of salvation for people in passages like Ephesians Ephesians 1.4, which says that God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. Similarly, in 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. Do you know when? Before the ages began. We also see it in passages that speak directly of God's plan for resurrection through Jesus. 1 Peter 1.20, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope would be in God. Ephesians 3, God created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And here it is. This was according to the eternal purposes that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The first point for us to see as we consider the reality of the resurrection is that it was not an afterthought by God or one of several possibilities that he had at his disposal that he drew out of a hat. Oh, it's going to be through resurrection. The resurrection was God's plan to save the world from all eternity. Grace, you know this. I've got a fishing trip coming up that I'm thinking a lot about. It's not all that important, and yet I'm still thinking about it. We tend to plan for the most important things in our lives. Think about the things you plan for. Generally, they're the most important things. The resurrection and all that was accomplished through it is one of the most important events in all of human history, and so it shouldn't surprise us to read in the Bible that God planned it before history. Second, because it was part of God's eternal plan, it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible contains many promises of the resurrection. The Old Testament is filled with hints and types and allusions to it. But the clearest examples come from Jesus himself. Jesus himself often spoke of the certainty, goodness, and divine origin of his death and resurrection. One of the clearest passages we saw earlier in John, in John chapter 2. So the Jews said to him, that is, they said to Jesus, what sign will you show us for doing these things? They, they wanted proof that Jesus is who he was saying he was. What, what sign are you going to show us to prove it? The Jews then said, or, or, and Jesus answered them, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a sign. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In Mark 8.31, we read that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And not long before his actual resurrection, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, his closest followers, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over and condemned to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. The reality of the resurrection is such that it was planned eternally and promised consistently. Jesus spent a good deal of his time, his ministry on earth, preparing his followers for what was to come because it was going to be the most significant act of love ever performed, but it was going to be done in the most unexpected way imagined. It was planned eternally, promised consistently, and endured willingly. In addition to the passages that we just saw, in which Jesus spoke of his crucifixion and resurrection as something he knew about, that was certain and good, there are two passages in particular I want to draw your attention to to speak to his willingness to be crucified in order that he might rise again. The first is Hebrews 12.2. There we read that it was for the joy set before him. If, if you want one of the most vivid pictures of the, res, res, or the suffering of Jesus possible, the physical suffering, watch the Passion of the Christ. I, I don't know of anything that captures it visually quite like that. So imagining that, knowing that was going to come and and Far, far worse, the forsaking of the Father. We read in Hebrews 12, too, that in in spite of all that, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. Similar way in Matthew 26. Going a little farther, he fell to his face. Jesus fell to his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Again, imagining what he was about to endure. Nevertheless, Not as I will, but as you will. My will is yours. There are others, but these two perfectly capture the universal biblical teaching that Jesus willingly, lovingly, even gladly, followed the Father's long-promised plan into his crucifixion and resurrection for the salvation of the world. Grace, we praise him for this. We do not have a reluctant, co-opted Savior In Jesus, we have a Savior who perfectly knew what awaited him physically, and again, even more significantly, spiritually. And yet, for the joy set before him, he willingly endured it for your sake and for mine and for all who would receive him in faith. And so would you receive him in faith today, the one who conquered death and invites you to share in his eternal victory? Well, finally then, the Christian claim is that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. The Bible simply leaves no room for a merely symbolic, metaphorical, spiritual, or otherwise ahistorical resurrection. Jesus' actual body suffered. His actual body died 
and rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul declares that these are not trivial issues. You maybe have wondered, what difference does that even make? Or does that even really matter? The Apostle Paul declared in no uncertain terms that these are not trivial issues or technical theological matters. He calls them matters of first importance. Grace, if we get this wrong, if this didn't really happen historically, we lose everything. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance of of all the issues in the Christian faith, this, the resurrection, is of first importance. What I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Okay? That Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. As a matter of historical record, you you know this. If you were here for the kids' uh, The kids play, you saw all of this displayed. But but as a matter of historical record, according to his own words, Jesus' entire life was moving towards his death and resurrection. They were set in motion on Palm Sunday, his death and resurrection, when he entered Jerusalem during the Passover week. And finally and fully, maybe you remember him saying over and over, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. It had finally come. And so on Palm Sunday, he entered into Jerusalem and finally and fully presented himself as the Christ. His crucifixion and resurrection were held at bay for a few more days until the proper time as he left Jerusalem each evening and went to Bethany, a city just outside of town, the town where he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. On Thursday night, Maundy Thursday, for the first time, Jesus stayed in Jerusalem that evening because now his time truly had come. The Bible is clear that 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 too was part of God's plan. Therefore, he was not caught off guard by his betrayal that night at the hands of Judas, his arrest at the conspiratorial hand of the Romans and the Jewish leaders. He wasn't caught off guard by the sham trials he was forced, he was brought through in the evening. And through the night, he was not caught off guard by the denial of Peter or even his torture and crucifixion. These events were well documented, as well documented in in more than most of any from the ancient world. The God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, died on Friday afternoon. He was taken down from the cross and buried that same day in a tomb purchased by a man named Joseph from Arimathea. For fear of that Jesus' disciples might steal his body and falsely claim that he rose from the dead. The Jewish leaders convinced Pilate to set a Roman guard to protect the tomb. Jesus remained dead and buried all day on Saturday. And then on Sunday, the third day, just as he had planned eternally and was promised continually, endured willingly, the resurrection happened historically. Jesus conquered sin and defeated death and rose from the dead. In his new and everlasting resurrection body, Jesus appeared to hundreds, including the eleven, his broader followers, and even to strangers and enemies. 
This was further proof of the reality, the historical reality of the resurrection. And make no mistake, this is no technical or trivial matter. Our entire faith rises and falls on it. Read the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul continues this beautifully and passionately, the way that he attests to the resurrection and its significance. And he says this, hear, hear this grace. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, meaning if there is no resurrection, we are to be people who are pitied above all. If there is no resurrection, our faith is futile and in vain. But, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. I hope it's easy for you to see that if Jesus had not risen from the dead, it would have invalidated much of what the Bible taught. It would have undercut its message and our ability to believe it, including Jesus' own words. And in that sense alone, the relevance of the resurrection ought to be clear. It was promised over and over and over again. And so if it didn't happen, it undercuts our faith. But at the same time, it's relevant for many, many more reasons as well. Several years ago, and I encourage you to go back. It's on our website. Go back and, and check this out. My entire Easter sermon was on this one point. And in it, I listed 12 benefits of the resurrection, biblically. 12 different ways the Bible says we benefit in our salvation from the resurrection. This morning, I, I just want to highlight a, a couple of them for you. Apart from these things, the resurrection might seem like a kind of cool, but it might, it might seem kind of cool, but more like a party trick than a significant part of our salvation. But as I hope to help you see, far from a party trick, Jesus' resurrection provides some staggering blessings to all who will receive it in faith. Number one is the resurrection proved that Jesus truly was the Son of God, the Bible tells us. Jesus made some fantastic claims about himself. Among the most shocking was his claim to be the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. I suppose anyone could make that kind of claim, right? Any of us could make a claim like that. But what could you possibly do to prove that it was true? Well, how about rising from the dead? Romans 1.4 tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection proved that he was who he said he was. And, that, and that's great news because it means everything else he said and did is worthy of our trust and praise. So the first resurrection benefit is that it proved that Jesus was the Son of God. Second, living hope and new birth come through the resurrection. In 1 Peter 1.3, Peter paints an unbelievably beautiful picture of the new life that God grants his people through the new life of Jesus Christ. It's really a remarkable passage. It reminds us that we are born spiritually dead, all of us, in Adam. That's the result of Adam's curse in the, in the garden. All of us are born spiritually dead and that our only hope is to be born again. Peter tells us that the second birth, this new birth, this being born again is connected to Jesus' resurrection. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What, what grace is ours through the resurrection, grace? The second birth that we need and the living hope we receive from it comes through Easter. How's that for good news? 
Amen. Third, the resurrection guarantees that there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. More still, the resurrection of Jesus means that all who have faith, all who have faith in Jesus will never be condemned by the Father. Paul writes, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised. Much of the end of Romans 8 describes the contrast between our life apart from Christ and our life through faith in Christ. In Christ, since God is for us, nothing in the entire universe can successfully stand against us. In Christ, since God gave us his highest treasure, his only son, we are guaranteed that we will, he will never withhold any lesser treasure from us either. In Christ, since God has already declared you and I not guilty, we know that no lesser charge will stand up. Because we're not guilty of treason against God, no lesser charge will hold. And in Christ, since Jesus died and rose again to cleanse us of all of our sins, nothing and no one can successfully condemn us before God. Grace, do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you feel that the weight of your rebellion against God even now as a Christian? Have you experienced brokenness and hardship, difficulty and struggle? The resurrection is the good news that in Christ you will never be condemned. My God, that's awesome. Lastly, Jesus' resurrection means that death is dead and that Christians will rise with Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is good news and that it means that we will share in Jesus' resurrection. In 2 Corinthians 4, we read, We know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Similarly, Romans 6, we read, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Grace, the good news of the resurrection of Jesus is that death is dead. Jesus defeated death. We've come to call Easter here death's funeral. You thought you were coming to a celebration, but you've come to a funeral, the funeral of death. Therefore, since he defeated it, it was impossible for death to keep Jesus and those who are in him. And that means that for Christians, it is not death to die. Jesus' resurrection definitively proved these things. Grace, because of Jesus' resurrection and all that it secured, we too will rise from the, from the dead into a new and everlasting life in the perfect presence and unending blessing of God. For us, physical and spiritual death will never meet. That's awesome. So what do we do? We've seen the reality and the relevance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if you've grasped these things at all, today or prior, even even in the smallest, most childlike way, if you've gotten your head around this, it demands that we ask a question. What do we do in light of this? If you have your head at all around the good news that the tomb was empty, that Jesus is alive. That's why we say Jesus is risen, not Jesus had risen. Jesus is risen even now. If you even have the smallest grasp of that, you have to ask, what what should we do in light of this spectacular news? Since it is true, what does this mean? What kind of response does this call for? How then shall we live I'm going to answer that question for you in some simple ways. But first, 
I want you to see what the earliest followers did in response. The, the first people who came to the grave and saw that it was empty. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and this is in our passage for this morning, they did a lot of running. In fact, my favorite, favorite passage in the entire Bible, not really, I'm kidding, but, but I love John 20, verse 4. Look at that. Both of them were running together. Uh, the, Peter is one and the other is unnamed, but it was John, the one who wrote this gospel, more than likely. Both of them were running, and I love this. This is the word of God. They're both running. They're, they're going back to Jesus, the em- empty grave, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. <laughs> I love it. I mean, who writes that stuff? This is the word of the Lord. But, but they ran. Mary showed up to the, to the tomb and it was empty, so she ran to tell Jesus' other followers. Peter and John were amazed and needed to check it out for themselves, so they ran in their excitement, Grace, walking wouldn't do. John and Peter, secondly, they, they did some investigative work. Not, not entirely sure what to make of the fact that the grave was empty, John went into some detail about the investigation he and Peter undertook. They didn't know if they should go into the tomb at first, so they stopped outside, and it says they crouched down and peeked in and saw some unusual things, and they saw his burial clothes lying there, and eventually realized, we got to go check this out even further. Mary joined them in a bit, but none of them knew quite what was going on, for, according to verse 9, as, as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Third thing to see is that Mary wept. When Mary got back, apparently she was not as fast as Peter and John. Surprised John didn't taunt her for that. Still taking it all in, she broke out into tears. And verse 11 says, Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. And as she wept, she stood looking into the tomb. Again, probably overwhelmed with a mixture of fear and and hope. Mary couldn't hold back tears. Well, not only was Mary sad, but she was also confused. While she was at the empty tomb, Jesus appeared to her in his glorified body. She didn't even recognize him at first. She mistook him for the gardener and said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him. She's confused. She didn't know what to make of this. Well, then she clung to Jesus. Once Jesus enabled her to recognize him, however, she, she seems to have thrown her arms around him, or at least tried to. And filled with joy and wonder, she sought to cling to him. Mary proclaimed, she responded as well by proclaiming the good news to the rest of the disciples. Jesus told her, don't don't cling to me, go tell the good news to the others. So she left and went back to let them know. She said, I have seen the Lord. Imagine from tears to awe and amazement. The disciples were gradually glad. I love this. I I feel like I would be totally overwhelmed in this circumstance, and it seems like the disciples were too. After a bit after sending Mary to tell the disciples, Jesus followed behind her and came to them as well. It says he came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. As John recounts this interaction, he gives the impression that it took a bit for the disciples to make sense of what they were seeing. But then, eventually, it says, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Well, the ten were relatively quickly won over. One wasn't there at the time, John tells us, Thomas. He wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to 
them, and so he remains skeptical. And the famous line, he says, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger in the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Doubting Thomas is what we call him. Eventually, however, Thomas is well-believed. When Jesus finally appeared to him and allowed him to see his scars, Thomas answered him and cried out, My Lord and my God. Grace, here's the thing. The point isn't for us, the point isn't necessarily for us to imitate the disciples here. It's not necessarily that we ought to run or investigate or weep or doubt or any of these particular things. John simply tells us what they did, not necessarily what they should have done. The point rather, and get this, Grace, is that the empty tomb necessitates that we do something. Grace, we simply cannot understand it and be indifferent to it or casual about it. Perhaps you'll notice that even though the disciples didn't, still didn't fully grasp the significance and wouldn't until the Holy Spirit came to dwell in them, they understood enough to know that the empty tomb necessitated a response beyond the ordinary. This is anything but a normal event, and it requires from us anything but a normal response. To read the gospel accounts of the responses is to feel. You're not reading it rightly if you don't feel their urgency, their amazement, their confusion, their desperation, their hope, their awe, their wonder. Until you felt these things with them, you, you too are still searching for the true meaning of the resurrection. But as we consider our proper response to it then. We must pray that God would help us to make sure it's in proper proportion to the significance of the resurrection. So what do we do? Here's what I want to close with. I want to offer you five very basic, probably very familiar thoughts. What do we do in light of this? This afternoon, next as we sing, this afternoon as you eat ham probably or something like that. Maybe somebody can tell me how those got united, Easter and ham, but But what might you do this afternoon and this week and this month and this year? Let me give you five things. Number one, pray. If you've been with us through John's gospel, you you understand this already. But truly, get this. If you're sitting here, kids, maybe you're you're not sure what to do with this. You're imagining going outside to play or, or whatever. Like adults, you're in and out of sleep or paying attention or whatever you're doing right now. If you're not quite sure what to do with this, Understand this, truly understanding the resurrection, truly appreciating the resurrection for what it is, and truly responding to the resurrection as we ought is a gift from God. You cannot do it on your, on your own. You need God's help. And so the first thing to do in response to this, even now, by yourself, pray earnestly and ask God to fill you with the true understanding of what happened and what that means. Ask him to fill you with appropriate awe and wonder. If if anything is worthy of your awe and your wonder, it's this. Ask him to fill you with the kind of focus and courage that the resurrection alone can provide. Ask him to give you the kind of love that he showed in sending Jesus to die and rise from the dead for you. Pray. If you want to do something in response to the resurrection this morning, pray. Second, read your Bible. The whole Bible, and the New Testament in particular, is primarily, this is, I think, a faithful way to say what the Bible is, or at least what it says. It's primarily a description of the ways God means us to respond to the good news, the gospel of the empty tomb. 
It is not for up to us to decide what God means us to do here. It is not up to us to decide the proper response. Since the resurrection is true, what do we do? It's the right question. And the only definitive place we can get the answer is in the word of God. God has graciously told us all that he requires of us from the resurrection. A right response to it, therefore, means expectantly reading your Bible through that lens. Let me encourage you to, 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 re, to commit to prayerfully scouring the Bible by yourself with others, listening to sermons in this way, studying your Bible this way. Carefully, prayerfully scour it, scour, scour it for all the ways that it describes life in the wake and in the power of the resurrection. And then with the Spirit's help, live like that. Number three, praise God. Above all, consider what the Bible says about the reality, the relevance, and the right response to the resurrection and praise God for it. Worship him. Praise him in the highest. He deserves all glory and praise. And there are a few places that that's seen more plainly than in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Praise him in prayer. Praise him in the music you listen to and create, the art you look at and create in your obedience, in your eating and in your drinking, and all that you do, praise God. As God grants you genuine awe at the empty tomb, turn it back to God in worship. Number four, tell someone. Don't keep this good news to yourself. Think of someone right now, in particular, someone, some real person, for real, right now. Think of some real person that you know that you can tell this good news to. And tell them, and tell them, Tell, the, tell someone today and tomorrow and until Jesus returns, more than any athletic victory. I, I won a fly rod, and I've probably told most of you the story in more detail than any of you care about. Most of you couldn't care less about fly fishing. I didn't even sign up for this thing, and I won it. I'm not going to tell you about that right now. But I told a lot of people this. In fact, my wife, in anticipation of how I would respond to this, said to the guy at the shop, she said, yeah, tell this like you're telling the gospel. She knew she was convicting. But anyway, do that. More than any athletic victory, maybe you've won something, maybe your kid did. More than any athletic victory, academic reward or award, financial windfall, work promotion, physical healing, or any other good news, share this greatest news with ultimate urgency and joy with the whole world, in the knowledge that you do so in resurrection power. Finally, lastly, live with focused confidence. Live with focused confidence. The reality and relevance of the resurrection, more than anything else, fixes our eyes on the things that truly matter. If this is true, everything else pales in comparison. Everything else pales in comparison. And fills us with confidence that victory is certain. Because death is dead, we have perfect purpose to glorify God by making all making disciples of all nations. And because death is dead, we have perfect confidence that to live is Christ and to die is gain. This enables us to live in gladness and freedom and love and hope, regardless of our circumstances or how others respond. And so before we turn this back to God and musical worship, let me remind you of one more thing. Just called you to consider the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and respond to it with all that you are. That, that's the heart of what I just said to you. But I want to remind you of one more thing. None of us has done that perfectly. 
none of us understands, appreciates, or responds to the good news of the resurrection as we ought. None of us ever have or ever will on this earth. By God's grace, we will grow more and more each day to live more appropriately in light of the resurrection. But none of us will fully get there in this life. The fact of the matter is this. That's what I leave you with. Easter is a reminder that we are never accepted by God because of what we have done, even even as we are never acceptable to God because of what we do. You can't get your resurrection response dialed in enough to earn God's favor. It's a big deal. Instead, the resurrection is an eternal declaration that Jesus did for us what God requires of us and what we were unable to do on our own. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus lived in perfect obedience, died in our place for our disobedience, and then rose from the dead to give us everlasting life. And we gain access to that, not by doing enough good works, including good works in response to this sermon, calling you to do good works in response to the resurrection. We gain access to that, not by our works. Jesus said the flesh is of no help at all but by trusting that Jesus, is alone, Jesus alone is sufficient and his resurrection from the dead declares that in power.